0: Mean old Line Media presents Black Arm of the Law.
1: Welcome to Black Arm of the Law podcast, where each week we'll examine the most pressing issues in the criminal legal system. I'm your host, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, also known as Chief B. As we settle into today's show, don't forget to download, subscribe, follow, rate, and comment on Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. So let's jump into it. My guest for today is none other than the chief, Murphy Paul of Baton Rouge. Uh, Baton Rouge, that's what I said. Louisiana, welcome to the show, chief.
0: Hey, thank you for having me, doc.
1: Oh, you know what? I appreciate it. You know, I'm about to embarrass you a little bit here, um, as is my nature. But I was looking at your um, your bio before we start talking into some of the more you know, meteor subjects, but you know, you rose to deputy superintendent in the Louisiana state police department, the Louisiana state police department. Now I don't know much about, well, I do know much about Louisiana, but for some reason, a black man finds themselves and that's the number two position, correct? Over all the state troopers that are in Louisiana.
0: Yeah. I was the deputy superintendent of investigations
1: uh oh so they let you investigate all them folks in louisiana as a black man
0: that that was one of my responsibilities as a deputy superintendent yes ma'am. i
1: see that um you had gaming you had special investigations you did the fusion center for people who don't know what that means that's yeah. gathering all of the intelligence when you hear about what's going on right now you know in um israel Things that happened around 9-11 when we bring those up, Ukraine, all of the domestic terrorism things that occur here, you had your finger on the pulse for what could be happening in the state of Louisiana and across the United States and abroad.
0: Yeah, you know, it was a huge responsibility, uh, uh, that position. Uh, that, that was uh, the criminal intelligence division uh, uh, was under my authority as well. Uh, and it worked closely with our, uh, our fusion center. Uh, So, uh, yeah, a lot of responsibility uh, back then. You know, we worked uh, a lot of investigations for uh, other police departments and sheriff departments, uh, office-involved shootings and in-custody deaths as well.
1: Well, you say that just so casually. Um, But one of the things I'm always most impressed with, um, not because I did this job myself, but when people take on training academies, writing curriculum um making sure that you um spend time as an instructor for those people who are coming in either as in service means after they've been through an academy or parts of the recruit teams that are coming into the. you took on that job what was your area of expertise um, in training with in-service post-certified officers and recruits
0: well, you know, interesting. Um uh training didn't really come under me until I moved through the ranks. So, uh, you know, as a uh, as a, a deputy superintendent, my first assignment uh was support services and training fell under that. Uh but I was a uh, uh I went through the uh, post uh instructor, the post uh, FBI instructor developmental course. Uh so I did go through that. Um uh, but I never had a really opportunity to go in there and put that to work. But because of that training, uh, I was able to use that in a leadership capacity right when things kind of came to me uh, through my majors and, and the commanders at, at the training academy i take one of the things that, uh, that 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 I learned fairly well uh, early on uh, doc was when we, when we were looking at training and, and some of the changes that were being made uh, in our curriculum uh obviously our curriculum exceeded uh, post requirements which is what the state required we almost doubled those uh, standards there, as well as here in the Baton Rouge Police Department. But uh, the training is important, the curriculum is important, but making sure that you're sitting in those classrooms, particularly when it comes to new training, and that that training is being presented in its proper context, right? Who's doing the training uh, is just as important as the curriculum itself.
1: You know that's an important statement. How yeah. knowledge is imparted, right? How people receive that information, that knowledge. I was talking to one of my um, classes, and I teach a, police, a class on policing Black bodies, and people always default to policy. They're like, "Well, if the policies, um, you know, we write the policies around excessive force or yeah. you know, no chokeholds or any of the other ones that either campaign zero, a can't wait, that would solve it all." And I keep telling people that policies make people feel comfortable, but what does it doesn't do, it doesn't account for how things are implemented, how you're trained on those policies, how those policies, no pun intended, are executed yeah. out in the field, particularly through, uh, around policing.
0: Yes, ma'am. Going through that right now, you know, it, 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 it's really so important. You know, the same policy, uh, 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 a culture's policy for breakfast, that is that is so true, Right. Uh, you're right. So, so, you know, you, you, have to have this, um, uh uh, 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 there has to be some, some accountability to make sure that the training is being presented the proper way in this proper context. And I think in, you know, what we're going through right now, I think sometimes, uh, third party, uh, accountability is, 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 is so important. That's one of the things that, uh, I wish I had, uh, uh, I looked at earlier and and, and, and looked at some consulting um, uh, um, companies that are out there who could have helped me uh, in making sure that uh, some of the 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 strategies some of the changes that we were being presented uh, was actually um, um, being being um, um, Uh, executed in in its proper format and and that the the training was being received and demonstrated out there in the field.
1: Yeah, um, that's really important. I know um, particularly we did a case study of, we went way back, this throwback, we went to 1991 and Rodney King and one of the very first viral videos um, around police misconduct or excessive use of force. Um, illegal stops or whatever the searches were and what was interesting about it is the defense attorneys for the four officers that were charged um, interestingly enough there's things you find out after the fact there were about 20 other individuals who watched but you didn't find out until later there were actually citizens who were like saying stop quit you're going to quit beating them you're going to kill Rodney King right it sounds very similar to some of the things we experienced in 2023 but the defense counsel said something interesting. They said, you know what? This wasn't excessive force. This was improperly executed training techniques is what the defense was. I thought that was novel. Yeah. Um, but it, it actually is an important conversation to have about what happens when you train and you don't execute properly your training, Right. And then that's the first time I really started hearing about the concept of awful, but lawful or lawful, but awful. And so you're probably hearing a lot of that in Baton Rouge when they talk about training that, you know, or the force or the way an officer stops or talks to someone. eh, It looks bad, but it's lawful. Right. It looks bad. So go ahead.
0: Yeah, we, you know it's interesting because we, we we've seen so much progress in in that point. You know, when we when we rolled out our body camera initiative uh, back in eighteen, our um, our body camera policy exceeds Department of Justice the program uh, exceeds Department of Justice recommendations, and we've seen so many uh, so much progress in that in terms of how we use it in our early intervention program. Uh, how we uh, uh, use it, where, where supervisors are required to um, do audits uh, more than uh, the recommendations of the Department of Justice. But, but we, we've seen so many opportunities where we were able to identify behaviors that were not responsive, that, that, that were not responding to the training and, and in a policy, and we're able to, to make those adjustments, right, sometimes through different coaching, sometimes through a, 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 a different supervision uh, techniques and tactics, and we were able to get a few officers around. Sometimes it was just some officers were going through something in their personal life, right, and it was spilling over into uh, uh, their business world. So, so there has been so much success and at peace. But, but there are also those situations where you just talked about, right, where uh, the training or the perception of a policy was taught. And then that behavior was continued and you realize, well, wait a minute, we we missed something right there, right? So now we got to go from the supervisor on down, address that particular um, um, a part of a policy or the interpretation of the policy because of how that person was trained years ago. And, And we have to go in and address that issue to say, no, there's been precedent that has changed since then. Uh, maybe we missed it in in-service, uh, but we have to address it because uh, this does not meet community expectations in policing today.
1: Right. And it probably didn't meet them back then either. And <laughs> what's so interesting about it is, because I really want to delve into your story in so many ways, it parallels the things that I went through in Charlottesville, but um you find when you're trying to even implement policies that are safeguards or would appear to be safeguards for officers, they are absolutely resistant to even those safeguards, right? And what I mean by that is, your body-worn camera policy um, is probably one that provides more protections and level of protection to the officers and the community than what the DOJ says. But then the officers will do things that undermine those protections, right? Because anytime you have a human being involved, um, there's going to be, there's going to be loopholes they find, or there's going to be ways they violate the policies. Um, Particularly, I found in Pittsburgh, when we first started doing body wearing um, cameras or mics first, um, they would leave them in the car, or they would turn them off, or they would do some other things that even if it was a um, uh, forgetfulness thing, gives the appearance of yeah. impropriety. And so I know you went into Baton Rouge in June or July of 2018? January. January of 2018. Mm-hmm. And, you know, municipal policing is very different than, let's say, state policing um, and very different than campus policing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. is very different than ur- urban versus rural policing. Yeah. So when you move from some place, and often you hear about the state police across all of the United States as being very highly regimented, highly disciplined, um, highly trained individuals. That doesn't, and it, it works really like a military organization. Like it really does, you know. Even the language you use, superintendent and colonels and and deputy superintendents and colonels and things like that. When you come to Baton Rouge in January of 2018, what was your experience um, in that moment when you first arrived there?
0: Yeah, you know, I didn't get the memo. Obviously, uh, <laughs> it, it is a big difference policing in a, a city uh, like that, like like this one, and then coming from state police uh, in, in, in in my years there. Uh, But, you know, what What I came in is is focusing on what I thought was the leadership piece, right? Um, uh, My my first months coming in, I I was actively listening. Um, I visited every district, uh, talked to uh, as many officers within the department, both civilian and police, um, to hear what they had to say, not just about the police department, but also about how they view the police department, how they saw uh, the, the police department, uh, but as well as how they saw the community they serve, right? And, and I spent a lot of time uh, taking a lot of notes uh, on on what I heard, and 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 I also did the same thing from the community standpoint, right? Uh, came in uh, listening to uh, the community, going to as many community meetings, uh, listening sessions as I can, and I think I began to 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 to, to form on, on what I believe to be some of the challenges in community police relations. Uh, we were fortunate because uh, I also had uh, external um, uh, support through uh, ICP and the Collective Healing Grant. So we were fortunate to be uh, a recipient of that uh, initiative. So we had Louisiana State University doing a, a surveys and assessments on uh, the internal culture while uh, the The uh, Southern University was doing the same from community, uh, doing community surveys to to see how we would view. So I had a lot of information coming in through, uh, obviously, our higher education institutions, uh, as well as what I heard firsthand from from people. And things begin to line up in terms of um, some of the challenges, particularly, in uh, communities of color and, and, and how we were policing and what their perceptions were uh, of the police department. So, um, you know, we, we got together and knew that that community engagement piece and that building that trust was going to be critical uh, into moving forward as, as a police department. So we spent a lot of time and energy in uh, in trying to, to do that and, and get the community involved but it was challenging there were roadblocks there were um, uh, there was resistance very intentional resistance uh, I would say to change uh, I'm aware that change in any organization it's, it's gonna uh, it's normal right in, in any industry when you're trying to present change uh, but, but because of the external influences, that, uh, that, that we saw that had a lot of influence on uh, uh, leadership in the union, um, um, uh, individuals uh, in power, uh, people with influence uh, outside the department, and how those relationships that they've had for so long really played into some of the challenges and obstacles to progress within the police department.
1: You know what, so what's really interesting to me, there was a, like I, I, I always take copious notes, um, and, and I understand the value of bringing in a post-secondary institution. One of the two quick things I noticed really um, was, and then I'm going to ask you, when you, so get a moment to think about this, about what surprised you, right? But the first thing I thought of is, so you had LSU do internal, like what was going inside, and then Southern about what was going on in the community. Now, I know inherently what I believe the differences are and why each university was selected for the type of work that it does. Um, you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, Southern is an HBCU, um, very well-esteemed. Um, shout out, both my in-laws um, graduated from Southern. So I do yeah. know about that beautiful campus. Um, but, you know, it's an HBCU. That means they Black folks, right? They historically black college and university. And so there will be a trust issue around the community if it's something like Southern during the research. And I also know that LSU is not an HBCU, right? Right. A very wealthy white community. Is that one of the reasons that we thought about having the officers or talk to the officers um, versus, say, Southern? Or, you know, or what was the difference between why choosing two different universities who are starkly different to deal with two very often starkly different populations?
0: You know, I didn't get into, I didn't have that conversation with the grant writer. uh, Mm -hmm. When I first took over, that that grant had just started. So the the mindset in that, I I do know that part of it was getting as many partners uh, as we can. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, um, you know, getting both of them involved, we, we know could take away some of the, uh, political, uh, conversations on why one was picked and not the other, you know, sometimes we, uh, have to take things like that in consideration. So I didn't get into it, but, but I think, I think it, it probably, what you're saying is probably correct. Uh, I think that, um, when we look at Southern university and, uh, uh, their role in 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 the city of baton rouge and the community and the work that they were already doing uh i think that getting that uh that that trust uh uh and getting people to come to the table and and speak openly and and uh having those courageous conversations would probably was easier with a southern university uh than 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 the others. so i i don't know what went into it but i think it really worked out because it really uh, gave me a lot of information that uh, I was able to make more well informed decisions with in terms of how I p- approached the community uh, and, and as well as uh, the officers.
1: So, what surprised you? What surprised you from the community? And what surprised you from internally within your department that you're like, what? Um, I would have never thought that would have been the responses coming out of the, either of those places?
0: Yeah, I, I think sometimes it, that, that sometimes those who have the loudest voices don't always represent the masses, right? There was a lot of support from the community. Uh, I think the community understood that uh, there was a lot of work that needed to be done uh, in, in terms of how we police uh, in the city of Baton Rouge. Um, uh, a lot of history there, right? One of the things that stood out to me, Doc, was the, um, uh, the generational trauma. Right. Like when you're having a conversation with someone and you ask about their experiences with law enforcement and sometimes uh, uh, that experience may not necessarily been their own, but it was something that happened to daddy or uncle or someone and and how that generational trauma can be passed down uh, to generations when you have. Uh, good folks uh, in the community who've had a bad experience and they share that experience with family members. And then, you know, when family members look up to uh, someone, uh, how that could negatively impact uh, community uh, of police relations. So when we began to have these conversations and uh, 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 created we created opportunities where uh, a contact between law enforcement and the community was based on uh something positive and not a negative stimulus it wasn't a call for service it wasn't us writing a ticket it was us attending a community event it was us hosting a community event and creating those opportunities just to have conversations um with with our police officers i really think helped us and then uh finding those individuals which was really uh, a key who didn't have a favorable opinion of us and not run away from them let's 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 embrace them let's bring them to the table Let's have these conversations and and changing that. So uh, there was more support uh, from the community than I had thought. Uh, the, the people in the community love us. They they want even in the, in the in the in the most disinvested communities, they want us there even more because they have to live the crime every day. So they want more of a police presence. It's what we do when we're there that matters, right? But they Great. want the presence. They just don't want us over there writing everybody and treating everybody. In those areas, like they're part of the problem, uh, so it's 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 going back and, and teaching officers uh, 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 that you know it's, it's it's how we police that matters, right? And giving officers discretion even more so in those areas of, of 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 high crime where we're having higher calls for services. So that that was one of the things that stood out to me that we had more support than than I thought, uh, and, and and how we can build on that uh, internally. It it, it was more on the union's influence. And when I'm when I speak of the union, I'm speaking of the leadership of the union and and how there's external people who don't work here no more, but still have a lot of influence on the leadership within the union and who gets picked and who's doing the lobbying work uh, and, and, and those connections that that play into those systems. You know we came in and we saw there were three there are only five members on the civil service board and three of the five mem- uh three three of the five had direct ties uh to the union uh and, and leadership and, and 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 then that then plays into uh, some of the opinions uh some of the decisions that were being made by that body i didn't think were necessarily fair uh when i first came in that they were not really looking at the evidence uh, but 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 that there was uh, other things going on in the background that led to some of those decisions or uh, uh, some of the decisions were made before we even presented any evidence. So I was shocked at the external influences that people who didn't work here anymore had on the leadership in the union and, and how that impacted uh, affected morale uh, in the ranking files.
1: So it's interesting because we're going to jump into. There were some things that you just said that we need to unpack. That literally went explosive. Um, and we, when I say viral, I was getting text messages. I'm getting calls. They're like, Chief B, Doc B, do you know Chief Paul? You got to get him on your show. Did you just see what happened in the the council meeting? And um, and um, you know, and I believe actually my producer might have been one. And I'm like. Of course, I know Murph, right? Um, Shout out to the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, Noble, who we are both members of um, and very proud members of. The one thing I can, and that resonates with me, is something that surprised me in Charlottesville. You're brought in to do this work of reform, of building community relationships, right? Of becoming a department that is transparent and legitimate in terms of its authorities in the, in, in the community, right? In the community's investment in that. And one of the things I was surprised by is, yes, I knew that, you know, we, we do know that the loudest folks in the room don't necessarily, on either side, internally or externally, right. represent the populace, right? Some people don't know that you, if you have a union shop, a steward shop, um, and you're a formal union, whether you want to be in the union or not, you're drafted in, you take union dues, you have to pay shop dues, even if you don't want to be part of a union, because they bargain on your behalf for wages and healthcare and things of that nature. Now, you can pay the shop fees and technically not be a union member, but it's, that means they won't represent you in discipline and, and promotions and things of that nature. But where your majority of your money comes from is that lobbying money, those shop fees that are union, whether you want to be a union member or not. And they hold a lot of sway, particularly, you know, in the north, the very formalized unions and down south, they have these police benevolence associations um, as well. Like I saw very similar. They are very influential, very political. And there are a lot of ties that you don't realize that are occurring. And, you know, I just remember, uh, without naming any names, like I had a female union representative attorney. She's dating one of my lieutenants in the Charlottesville Police Department. So the likelihood that I'm going to get the kind of like disinvested looking at the policies, you know, and she's not recusing herself from any of these cases in Charlottesville, right, as a union lawyer for the Benevolence Association. But I also miscalculated how invested people are in the systems remaining the same. The people you think would want it changed, my politicians, my legislators, my, you know, council persons, people out in the community. Man, I was so shocked to find out how invested they were in the status quo because it benefited them.
0: No, you, you know, the relationships, and, and I think that's the piece I didn't I didn't understand and really have an understanding for and how those relationships play out into so many factors, whether it's media relations, <laughs> whether it's appointments on uh, a, a certain uh, a boards, uh, you know, whether it's a relationship before the city council where I have to go before to get uh, anything approved financially. And, and I didn't, I didn't get that memo. Uh, you know, had I had that knowledge, I think going in, uh, I probably would have been a lot more strategic in trying to develop those relationships and work on it. But I didn't know, uh, you know, I went in with this, uh, uh, reading all of these leadership books, i just finished, uh, you know, uh, my, my FBI National Academy, and I just went through John Maxwell's uh, course uh, uh, to become a certified mentor, and I, I spent time there re- reading all John Maxwell books. So I got all of this leadership, all of the, you know, how are we going to change a, a culture and what we're going to do, and I promise you, I didn't get the memo on the politics of things, and uh, uh, I, I learned that pre- pre- pretty quickly uh, in the midst of Making some very uh, unpopular decisions, uh, where I had to terminate uh, a popular uh, officer on the job who was a generational, uh, a police officer, and, and the influence that 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 that, that they had uh, in this community, but not just in, in in Baton Rouge, but in the law enforcement community, and how they were, you know, respected and loved, uh, and, and, and been around so many years in leadership positions, and and not understanding how that decision was gonna negatively impact my relationship with others. uh, Because everybody don't always know the facts. You know this, uh, look, from being in these positions, Chief, you know there's a lot of information that you have as a chief of police that the general public and even others who are not involved in an administrative investigation that they don't really get to know. And 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 some things we don't share because we have to respect the process. But then you just see how those influences that they have can form opinions of of decisions and, and of you as a leader, and how that impacts uh, not only morale within the department but public perception of of of, of you as a, as a leader. And you know what you do, you strip my funding. Are you gonna pay the attorney all the money that I already owe them for the bad cops that the civil service board, where we gonna be here tomorrow and none of y'all gonna be here. And y'all sitting here trying to deal off these people's emotions and some of y'all the problem. Jen Rocker, you sit there, defund the police budget from a legal standpoint. And then come here because I don't have legal representation and I got to play lawyer to fight these bad actors. Let me
1: just tell you um, what you just said. I'm going to unpack that for you, what, yeah. what has occurred for you over the last month. But it started before that. Yeah. You came in there much like myself. Like I did a business model assessment. You know, I've got my officers doing Strength Finders 2.0. I've got them doing predictive indexing you know, how they best fit in these spaces. I'm doing, you know, mapping job descriptions with their actual strengths and characteristics and traits. And I'm doing all these things that somehow, you know, dismantle nepotism, which they're complaining about, but they don't like this either, right? Because it actually is a much more fair system. I'm uncovering corruption in my department. I'm terminating people. um, And I'm catching all sorts of personal hell from it. And don't know if I'm allowed to curse on podcast, FCC rules. I have no idea. My The producer will take care of that. You face some very similar things. I mean, when you came in trying to do this work, culminating in the things that have occurred over the last, say, 90 days in your department, you were targeted. If I'm correct, they went after your family, your sons. They went after you. They went after, you know, your loved ones, um, partners, et cetera. I mean, this wasn't easy for you to go about this work because it was not only not easy, there was actual personal jeopardy and danger to you and your family, if I'm correct. And and everything that I know, the conversations that we had and what was public facing.
0: Yeah, you know, there have been some some things that have happened. And and I know some of that came out in my um, uh, my my words before the city council, uh, I think some of that, 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 that happened over my, my five and a half right. year period. Um, the, you know, family should always be off limit. You know, they, like, I, it comes with the territory as the chief of police. If you want to talk about me, if you want to say this, like, I, I understand that. And I get that that comes with the territory. I've always looked at that as just distractions to try to take you off course. Right. If you stay focused on the mission, you stay focused on your plans, and you do these things. All of those distractions, and and, and you pray, right? They they take care of themselves. Um, but you know, when we look at um, some of the things that have, that have happened, uh, I, I I never was scared. You know, I never <laughs> was scared. Let me let me say, I wasn't as a, as a person because um, I, I, I'm I'm i I'm, I'm just not going to live off fear. But when you start to you know, share photographs of my babies and, and my girlfriend and, uh, you know, run my, you know, a family member of mine's name and, and things like that. I, I think things like that, you, you really start crossing the line I and mean, you get in the plot on uh, where I establishment I may, you know, frequent and, and what what they're going to do if, if they catch me there or something like that. And, you know, you, you go to looking at all of these things and then you go to looking at, uh, uh, some of those who were involved in, in, in and let me be clear, it's, it's not the whole department, right? It's a small group of individuals, uh, who are resistant to change, uh, some who, many who don't work here no more, um, anymore. Um, and, and then you go to look at their background, right? And, and you start to look at things that they've done in the past, and you begin to get this, see this picture, on, 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 on! Wow, you know, there is a possibility that 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 there's some, uh, um, um truth to 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 these based on their own patterns of behavior, and things that uh, a couple of them have been done in the past that that cross the integrity line.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I can be honest with you. I mean, I the same thing. You know, it's okay. I mean, I I can't say that it's okay. The death threats that I received from my own officers you know, from out in community. That's one thing. Um, but when I have to start bringing home pictures of officers who I tell my husband, who's a professor, he has nothing to do with policing. You know, watch. I heard they're circling our home now. They're sending officers to circle our home. i um, late at night. You know, I'm having to add additional alarm systems to my home. It's, I mean, that kind of stuff, it, it definitely, it's beyond crossing the line. And often it's a result of Doing what's right with these extremely popular officers, you find that sometimes the most roguish officers are extremely popular within the department, right? They're looked upon highly favorable. They get great evaluations, um, but there's lots of complaints often about them. You often hear about excessive force. You often hear about it. And in some ways, the certain individuals within the department, and you're right, it's not everybody, they look up to them. It's like, this is a cop's cop, right? They don't take any mess, right? We, we, we're doing things for the right reasons. And we're just not getting the results because the system is going to fail us. We're going to have these liberal prosecutors. We're going to have everybody else. We don't like how it's being done. So we're going to have to take things into our own hands. And, and oftentimes what starts out as a well-intentioned behavior quickly finds itself sliding down the slippery slope.
0: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: You yeah. found yourself in that, um, you know, when I bring up the, the Braid Cave. Like, yeah. um, this is what this viral video in front of council was all about the type of misconduct, abuse, um, some have called it torture. You know, Chicago is under investigation that has a torture squad for the way they were treating their people they were interacting with. They were torturing them. So it's a whole squad that is investigating those kinds of behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. You face something extremely, um, probably similar and vile, when officers are being accused of taking people off-site very openly announcing they're going to the brave cave now if you're calling it the brave cave in mine i'm just saying they're, somebody's trying to test your mettle let's see how brave you can be once you up in here in this private space against all of us but i don't know what that means talk me through what happened and how you got to the point that you were terminating and then if i'm i'm, I'm even correct People were facing, officers were facing criminal charges for their behaviors for what was going on in the brave cave.
0: Yeah. So, so, so let me say this, that, that, that's still under investigation. Uh, there, right. So, so I know,
1: I don't want you to talk about the individuals. I Let's yeah, talk about the, so, the concept of what was happening. Yeah.
0: So, so that's still under investigation. There are parallel investigations going on. Internal affairs is still working. The IA investigation related to those complaints and uh, our intelligence division is working the uh, criminal side uh on on several occasions can, can I
1: stop you for one second chief? Yeah. Can you just explain to our, our our listeners that oftentimes there are dual investigations, but the administrative one often will have to pause mm-hmm. if there are any ones that you're looking at for criminal allegations
0: that that's correct that's usually the norm on on how that go but but sometimes we we may have an administrative investigation that was that was started and then we have a criminal going on parallel and we make a decision to run them both parallel or in many cases uh, we'll pause the administrative until the criminal investigation concludes because there are timelines to administrative investigations. The administrative, what we're looking for, were there any policy violations? Uh, We're looking at training issues, uh, supervisory issues, uh, things that we can uh, uh, do in the department better to make sure if there's a sustained violation that uh, incidents like that don't happen again. The criminal investigations or is there a violation of criminal law? Simple and plain. Uh did the officers violate criminal law in that? Uh, we notified our federal partners uh because we believe it was important to have a independent review, particularly on the criminal uh, complaints that were uh, that were coming in. So, uh we don't we don't I I don't have all the facts yet. Um, re- re- related to, to, to those complaints. There are lawsuits. A lot of these complaints came uh, in a form of lawsuits as well. So, so we're getting lawsuits that are, or where well, there are allegations, but then no one filed a complaint, right? So then we still have to take what's in there and, and try to investigate it as best we could and encourage uh, those who are making these complaints to participate in the administrative process and come in and do an interview. Uh, we do have cases where the attorneys in those respective cases uh, uh, don't want their uh, 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 don't, don't want to participate in, in the interviews, and they may provide written statements or tell us to use the complaint. Uh, so, so we have to navigate in in, in those waters uh, to, to 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 try to determine what actually happened in, in those instances uh, on each case. What did happen was we did receive a complaint uh, from the community. Uh, as it relates to an incident that happened uh, several years ago uh, that I directed uh, my my, my staff to look into. Uh, Subsequent to that, uh, there was a criminal investigation where unfortunately I had to arrest one of my deputy chiefs uh, as well as uh, um, two others, uh, a supervisor of of the street crime unit um, and a former member of the street crime unit. So um, we did have to make an arrest uh, based on uh, that investigation. The internal affairs investigation on that is still ongoing. I'm waiting for the final report uh, as it relates to the administrative side of, of, of that. But th- that is, you know, some of the things that we're going to be looking at uh, is is this uh, a subculture within a department that that's 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 specific to that uh, unit of those individuals who were assigned there. Uh, was it just specific to certain individuals in a unit and not the unit itself or or the department as a whole. Uh, right now, most of our focus based on uh, the information that we have is is towards uh, one unit. Um, um, we, we, we do have uh, officers. Uh, we do believe based on what we know at this time that can still at this time do their job and they will reassign. Those officers where the evidence has been presented uh, were put on administrative leave, uh, subsequent to those criminal investigations. And there's uh, some accountability on that piece. Uh, So 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 what my prayer is in in, in the community, because there's been so many uh, allegations and this story has has taken, uh, you know, a a life of its own in so many circles. And and, uh, I do understand uh, the concern based on the allegations. But this isn't the first time we've dealt with this, Doc. You know, a few years ago, we got a complaint about our narcotics division uh, from a community member. And and, and and that community member was presenting that to an, an investigative reporter. And we asked, I asked him, I said, let me do my job. If you think those allegations in that letter are true, give me an opportunity to, to look into it. But, but if you go public with this, it's going to be harder for me to do my job. You know, the story is going to be just the same three, four, five months ago as it is today. I'm just asking you to give me an opportunity to do my job. And that community leader did. You know, he said, OK, chief, here it is. Here's the letter. Uh, set up a meeting with some attorneys, which led to uh, uh, an investigation into the narcotics division. Uh, we uh, arrested two narcotics officers. Uh, one was terminated. Uh, and two supervisors actually retired early uh, before the administrative investigation concluded. Uh, and we made some significant changes uh, in that narcotics division uh, and uh, moved some people around, but there was accountability. And, and I think the community uh, understood that uh, because they saw that at the, at the end. And I think that uh, because we have gone through this before uh, and, and we've built some trust I think they're sitting there waiting to see, OK, let's see how this one is going. It's going to end. Uh, and and um, I, I believe we've demonstrated that. Uh, I think the, the community uh, understands uh, that these investigations take time. You live in a time where people want to know everything tomorrow. Maybe um, uh, yesterday. Think, yeah. Yeah. Yesterday. I'm sorry. yesterday. You're right. Uh, but no. And, and I think that, you know, but. One of the challenges I see, and, and I'm not sure if you dealt with this, is. We haven't found a way when I say we, I'm speaking of the police department and the union, how to still, um, provide services that you are contractually obligated to hire an attorney and all of that. You can still do that without speaking. Uh, uh, out on on bad bad officers. And th- that's a balance that that they have to find. Uh, and I've had these conversations with them. You can still go out there and pay an attorney to represent them because you're contractually obligated to do that. But that don't mean on these cases when we have an officer who've crossed the line that you got to go out there and defend them as, as a member of, of the union. And I think that that's one of the pieces I think that we can do better at. And I'm hoping that the new chief uh, through his leadership or her leadership, whoever that may be, can, um, um, build on that relationship to, to, to help find that balance and show them how you can still, uh, meet your, 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 your contractual obligations, you know, as, as, as a union without going out there and supporting bad actors who, uh, within a department. Yeah. Um,
1: you know what, um. I'm finding, and research is actually supportive of this, and actually, if you think about under the DOJ umbrella, most of the consent decrees that are coming out, um, Pittsburgh in 1997-ish, we, when I was still there, we were the first major city to ever enter into a, into a consent decree in the nation. Like, it was the first one. Um, and we got out of it. Not like Oakland, who's been in there for like 20 years, and they even got a DOJ um, team there. What we're finding out and research is finding out is these specialized units, these insular units. Um, at the time in Pittsburgh, we had a jump out squad. It was the same thing. It was a street crimes, supposedly dealing with high crime drugs. You know, people don't want to, to have to have go to their front door and someone's dealing drugs on their front steps. Like they, nobody wants that in their life. And I'm not advocating for that at all. But what I found in Charlottesville and, and across other departments it tends to be the specialized unit. We heard about the Scorpion unit, um, you know, in Atlanta. We heard in Memphis, you know, in the death of Tyree Nichols. There's this pressure to create these units to deal with some of the problems. But then the type of unit, what happens is it becomes its own unit and somehow starts to evolve, right? And like you said, you eventually have to start transferring people out, shaking it up because there becomes this subculture often, that permeates the entire unit. Um, even if you're not participating actively, passively in the fact that what you see or you don't say or you don't respond to corrupts the whole the whole unit. One of your frustrations um, as is mine, I fired literally um, six officers, actually during my time in Charlottesville. I'm there three and a half years. And I fire a total, I think of about close to eight to 10 officers. That's a lot of officers in a short period of time, right? So it became, I was the problem. Literally, I was the problem. My city council person said, what do we do? Keep her or try and work with who we have? And I'm like, "You—if if it's just me answering calls, that's what we want. The public deserves better than that. One of your passionate and emotional responses, both in your chambers, council chambers, or a meeting, and then a post-meeting um, press conference, you tr- you express your frustration with the systems that tell you to do your job. But when you do do exactly what they hire you to do, they're the ones who are putting up the roadblocks for it.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's it was so interesting because that, that same body, I was there last year where I terminated a guy and, and, and they gave him that platform to speak. And this is when I was trying to get funding for my attorney because I had to hire an outside attorney to represent me on disciplinary matters. Uh, and he had exceeded his uh, his uh, his contract. And we we're trying to get an extension on it because. We're having a, a lot of cases were being um, uh, appealed, and 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 when I say that, like small cases were being appealed, like letter of reprimands, like no time off, but it was just this. You could just tell this system where we're gonna run the bill up, bill up, and then I have to go before this same body who uh, chose not to, uh, to, to 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 pay uh, the the to approve the payment of the uh, the fees that went over. But what was interesting in that process, we learned that uh, other departments, that was a standard, right? If somebody provided the service, even though you went over a little bit, it was never an issue. We've demonstrated that we've done that to others from the library to this one, to that one. But for some reason, this body took issue with it. And and to to bring an officer who had been Terminated recently uh, uh, when that happened, and uh, the words that was used to describe that officer is brave and all of these different uh, uh, terminologies, and to give him a platform, and then to vote against my recommendations as the chief, and then to come around a year later, and then pres- give this show like you really want accountability. I'm like, wait a minute now, nah, come on, nah, I. I you know, th- these meetings are public records. So we can go back and, and view exactly what I am talking about when you get this 180 degree turn now. And, 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 and yeah, I, I think it's, it's one of those situations where I, I was quite aware of the relationship between a few of those members and uh, um, union leadership and, and how they were using that body uh, I believe, as an opportunity to prevent me from doing my job, because I think that they knew that there was some progress in our criminal investigation. And that was an attempt to interfere with that, I believe.
1: You, you know what? Um, the scary part is you the only time you find out for sure is after the fact. So I had no idea. My council members were having these intimate conversations like oh can i visit you at your office at 10 o'clock at night 11 at night with my city manager do you need some help who's also having these intimate conversations with the head of the police civilian review board all coordinating behind my back to undermine the work that i'm doing but their public face is saying we support the fact that she's disciplining these officers meanwhile they're saying behind their back fire her get rid of her Um, because I'm more of a headache than I'm worth. And interestingly enough, one of the officers who I fired for excessive force was charged criminally, convicted of it. He eventually appeals it. Um, Somehow, I've never heard of a case dismissed with prejudice because the victim of the excessive force of a police officer didn't show up in court the first time. with prejudice, right? So you tell me what happened in that case. In the meantime, this officer just recently turned around and sued me for, you know, losing his job, um, for, for unlawful termination. Dude, we arrested you for excessive force and you're lying on the police reports. The body warm camera says you lied, but I'm the person that's getting sued. And the city was rude when I'm like, hey, I just got served. They're like, and? I'm like, oh, no, no, you've got to represent and defend me. But the hesitancy to defend you for doing the job they hired you to do, but will laud and appra- you know, praise someone who was arrested for excessive force for beating a civilian. It's amazing how the system has turned itself upside down. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Yeah. I, I know you're you're walking away from Baton Rouge,
0: yeah, yeah you yeah.
1: you decided to resign um
0: yeah. and let, yeah, and let, just
1: let me I know that decision was made before right but there right, was right. an article that um one of them actually i was uh, was one of the highlighted chiefs, in. it said that this profession is pushing out the most reform minded progressive police chiefs. In the nation, like the profession is pushing it out, and the majority of them look like us. They're women and blacks, right? They're they're brown um, or they identify as as Hispanic and Latino. They're pushing us out of the profession. Like there's no room for us to be successful in it. I'm now strictly in academia. I don't know what retirement or resignation like because you've already retired. You already got that. That one. So when people say we leave these jobs, listen, right. the reason we can afford to do the things we do, it's our integrity of heart. But it ain't bad to have a pension so that That's I can right. walk um, and That's I right. on your income Disability.
0: and yeah.
1: your political influences. Right. So I, I hear you on that. Before you before you walk through the door or be out of the door, um, two questions. What's your legacy?
0: You know uh, what I hope uh, that you know five years from now, maybe ten, and then they talk about Chief Paul. Uh, I believe the conversation will be um, um, about the the technology that 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 I uh, brought to the department. I help bring. You know, our real time crime center. There's so many police agencies across America around the state that have come, and I, you know, our partnership with Motorola. And how we're using that technology to make more informed decisions and just to be smart about how we police today uh, with the assets that we have. And, you know, doing more with less, just being smarter on how we move offices around and how we're using uh, the, the, the ShotSpotter technology, the license plate reader, our uh, Connect Blue, which is our camera share program where uh, community members are letting us know when where they have cameras at uh and then businesses are giving us access to their cameras uh real time and how we're using that uh to to kick off our drone program just and, and then hiring an analyst right actually not having analytical support now we're putting it, we have analysts in there uh uh the office of safety where we can uh Uh, you know, through our partnership with Axon, where we can actually look at cameras live now through the Real-Time Crime Center, uh, through our partnership with our new RMS, which is through Axon, uh, where we're going to have efficiencies now because as they talk, it types in the reports. So just so many great things that we're trying to do to make our police officers' job, not just safer, but easier, while at the same time engaging the community and letting them know that we are only one part of this issue called crime that the community plays a role and that crime isn't just a police issue it's a community issue and that's really helping and 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 i think that i hope that my legacy will be the technology and and the transparency and accountability we, we brought you know we, we we pride ourselves in uh aligning ourselves with 21st century policing that's on our website you can actually see that Um, but, but I hope that, that that's, uh, that's what, uh, the, uh, my legacy was or is (laughs) or will be, (laughs) that's the prayer.
1: So the last work question before I ask my final personal question and, and, and give you the last word here, what advice would you give the next person who's going to sit in that chair?
0: Really? Wow. Oh, Is that
1: the advice? I, really? <laughs> like you? Yeah. To send no.
0: The so advice? so well, it's what advice. It's, would you give them? No. So, Doc, it's a little it's a little personal because obviously I'm writing that down mm-hmm. uh, and I want to be respectful of the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm going to have a heart to heart. What I'm going to share is my failures. I'm going to share uh, the things I, I could have done better at. Uh, I'm going to share what I did in 2018, what worked. What changes I made in 2019, every year we have a leadership retreat where we go about strategy, talk about what worked, what didn't work, what changes are we going to make. The challenges of 2020 and what we did in 2022 uh, to to, to get our crime rate down, we're sitting at about a 46 percent, 47 percent reduction in homicides in two years. We said that we were going to have homicides down between 40 to 50 percent in two years. And we are actually uh, on pace to do just that. Our homicide numbers are lower than pre covid uh, levels. Uh, so, so I think that uh, being intentional with our strategies on, on fighting crime really helped. But I'm going to share how I believe he can get that down another twenty five percent next year. Right. And I'm going to share that with him. But also I'm going to share this with him. And I just got this. Can you can you see this? You probably can't see it right now.
1: Quit it as he holds up this tiny piece of paper
0: yeah. with yeah, all this writing on it.
1: it. And, uh, but
0: it's, 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 it's five important workplace prayers. And I'm going to share that with him. And that's why I have it here, because I attended an event uh, through uh, one of our pastors who shared it with us. And it's a prayer for peace over job security. Because I want him to have job security. I don't want him to go through what I went through. Right. I don't want him to go through with the last reform chief that came through this department went through and how he was ran off. Right. Uh, it's a prayer for adapting to change and understanding that we got to embrace it, whether we like it or not. Even the next generation, guess what? They're not going nowhere, but we are. So it's more important for us to make the changes than them. We just have to do more coaching, more mentoring and more actively listening and what makes this next generation uh, tick, I'm going to share with him um, uh, the prayer for positive relationship and hopefully that he can build on something that I wasn't able to do uh, with the leadership of the union and a prayer for wisdom at work. Uh, Because you and I know you need wisdom to make these decisions because everybody's not going to always agree with them, but also a prayer for favor in your work duties. Uh, we need that in order to be uh, 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 successful in what we do, because, uh, you know, you got to be a praying chief to be in these positions and uh, to, to to keep a smile on your face. And uh, so that's what I'm going to share with him. I'm, uh, the specifics, I'm going to save it for his ears and his heart or her ears. <laughs> and her heart, all right. I'm just going to say that. Personally, I think female. Chiefs rock. I think they do a better job. I'm just saying I'm probably going to uh, somebody going to talk about me uh, about that. But uh, I, I'm telling you that, that I just love the work they're doing at Norley and see how they're developing uh, our female leaders. Uh, and you and I know we we know some female leaders who, who held these positions who you and I know were the best of the best. And when you see them retiring, you're like, wow, because these are Leaders that we look up to, we know their heart is in the right place. We know they're intelligent. We know they're smart, and we know they have vision. And it does get disheartening sometimes, Doc, when you have uh, those type of leaders around the country that I've looked up to that helped me in my career, and you see them leaving, and you're like, "Now who are they going to get that's going to do a better job than her, or who are they going to get that's going to do a better job than him?" And um, but but the, the beauty of that is they all still serving, just in a different capacity, right? So I'll That's do right. the same.
1: <laughs> That's right. So, you know, just to follow up with this, I'm ask you one personal question. Um, follow up. You're right. Um, praying chiefs, I don't care what anyone says. You know, I literally have as my mouse pad, and I you can see this, right? Someone yeah. made it for me. Yeah. Every morning I would come into my police station and I would do Psalm seventy-eight, seventy-two, And it says, And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. And with skillful hands, he led them, right? And so, you know, David yeah. shepherded it with integrity of heart. And you do this work with integrity of heart and yep. those God-given skills, please, Baton Rouge, y'all don't know what y'all doing down there. <laughs> so my final question is, yeah. all right. So um, you know that both my in-laws went to Southern. I told you that. Um, you're right, you're my right. father-in-law's mother lived right off of Plank Road, Sunshine Road over in Baker, um, great cook. Tell me about your either your gumbo or your étouffée. <laughs> Tell me you can cook either one.
0: Ne- jambalaya. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could do a little jambalaya. That's that's my thing. I can do the. I can't do that étouffée. I can't do the gumbo. Uh, I, I save that for the elders who know what they're doing. Uh, but I uh, I learned to whip up a little jambalaya for them boys, and uh, I do have a little. Uh, recipe I use, you know, with a little, little hot sausage in there, <laughs> uh, on top with the sausage, a little shrimp, and um, uh, uh, just don't tell no, just a little tidbit of uh, a crawfish ball. I just touched oh Lord, on, Lord, so Lord, you got the crawfish. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Folks, yeah. I want to thank my guest, um, soon to be retired again. Yeah, he. Murphy, Paul, thank you for spending some time with me this afternoon.
0: No, no, thank you for having me. Like, and I appreciate it. And like, I I, I, I want to say this because I think, um, you know, w- when we talk about the challenges and, and you know this uh, as well, and we talk about the systems that have made our job harder, right, and things. And sometimes in that, you know, we got to remember that in every department, in every department, there's good men and women that's out there doing the right thing every day that's uh upholding those values of loyalty duty respect honor integrity personal courage and we don't get to talk about them as much right because uh, sometimes the 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 toxicity it, it it takes the headlines uh but i've been doing this profession for 32 years how long you been in that how, how long you
1: 38
0: 38 years and have they been a blessing
1: oh my gosh <laughs>
0: And I you couldn't know, do this
1: work even with you today had I not been right. in this space.
0: Amen. And that's why we always have to remember our why. Why we took this job. Why, what led us to become public servants? It wasn't because of the money, right? And when you think about your career, when I think about my career and all the law enforcement officers who are gonna listen to this podcast. And when you think about why you started the job, why did you wanna serve? And then you think about in your career how many lives you've touched, how you made a difference in somebody's life. And I know when I talk to police officers all across America, everyone has a why and everyone has a story about someone who uh, they've impacted their life. That's what this job is about. And when we never forget that, when we never forget that and always remember why we serve then we don't go out there and make some of the mistakes that we see some of our, uh, some of the individuals we talked about today. We just can't forget our why and, and, and just don't forget why we take this job and how we are affecting lives in a positive way every single day, that's what really matters.
1: Thank you, I couldn't say it any better. Thank yes, you, Chief. Paul, oh, you. appreciate yeah. you, be well. So what happens when you're a police chief and your actions, your behaviors go viral? Well, on this end of the SHIFT report, we're going to talk about that. Chief Murphy Paul is the police chief in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And about a month ago, a video that he did went viral. Um, he confronted a civil service group um, who basically funds the, the, the investigations, or if you want to think about the investigations, when someone's brought up on charges, discipline, they're the ones who do the funding for the police chief to have the attorney. There's also, you know, you bring them before these tribunals to, to have these cases. His goes viral because there are these investigations going on in Baton Rouge, circulating around things like it was called the Brave Cave. Um, four people were arrested. Officers were supposedly allegedly bringing individuals to this offsite place interrogating them, strip searching them, beating them. There was an investigative report that went out by the news. And the chief says, hey, listen, I'm getting rid of folks. I am doing what I'm supposed to do. We have people who may be corrupt, an entire unit that may be corrupt. We have brought in the FBI, the DOJ to look at all of this. And the same folks that you are asking me to get rid of, you're looking forward to bring them back on or even to cut my funding so that I can do the proper investigations and discipline that is required, the follow-up, the appeals, etc. His impassioned remarks go across the nation for every chief who's facing these same kinds of, of issues. And you know what? And he does it. And his passion, where he thinks the community is going to go against him, some of them, of course, on this board are asking him to resign. He's unprofessional. The community backs him and says, you know what, this chief is doing exactly what we said we wanted him to do. We want them to root out those corrupt officers. We want them to root out corruption. We want them to professionalize the department. But what happens when the people on the inside are working against you, against the community's wishes? Well, you know what happens? You have a chief who says, all right, I'm gonna keep doing what's right. I'm gonna speak out. I'm gonna speak out when they threaten me. They threaten my, my children. They pass pictures around of his children in the police department, associating him, his sons with gangs. They pass out pictures of him and his girlfriend. They start hanging out at his favorite places, hoping to catch the chief in an act of corruption. It takes integrity of heart to stay in that place. And at the end of my conversation with Chief uh, Murphy Paul. I thought I had it tough in Charlottesville. This man stayed. And you know what he stayed? Even though he's now resigning, that was in the works before this all blew up. He said, you know what? I stayed because I remembered my why. I remember, yes, toxicity, as he says, takes the headlines, but it's the everyday work of how you make a difference. That's why we stay. That's why we stay for 36 years. 38 years, 40 years in a profession that we love. Because regardless of the headlines, the way in which we touch lives, the way in which we make a difference, the story of our impact will outlast any other headline or possible hashtag that comes your way. Folks, that is my end of SHIFT report to our audience. Thank you for listening. Please tell someone about the show. Don't forget to download, subscribe, follow, rate, and comment on Twitter. Hit us on Instagram or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts like Apple, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or the Mean Old Lion Media app. We'll take you there. Thank you for listening. This is the end of my shift. I am 1042, and I'll catch you next week.
0: The Black Arm of the Law podcast is hosted by Rashal Brackney-Wheelock. Executive producers, Ken Johnson, Steve Tompkins, and Rashal Brackney-Wheelock. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, the Mean Old Line Media app, or where you get your podcasts. Follow Black Arm of the Law at BLKArmofthelaw on IG and X. Follow the Mean O'Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean O'Line Media app in the App Store and Google Play for more great podcasts. The Black Arm of the Law Podcast is a Mean Line Media production. So,
1: you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media,